Man, and Happy New Year, church family. It's 2022. That's pretty crazy. And that's about all I got to say on that one. Um, no, it, it's, uh, it's wild. I think Bethany and I both looked at each other and thought, how on earth is it already a new year? But it is. And I know that at the beginning of uh, the year, there are some of us who absolutely despise the idea of New Year's resolutions, and there are some of us that thrive on the idea of New Year's resolutions. But at the beginning of the year, everything is fresh, everything is looking forward, there's optimism there, but what I want to do this morning is actually look at the end. Even though we're at the beginning of New Year, I want to look at the end, and here's why. It was a couple years back. Uh, you don't, by the way, have to be some diehard fan of these movies to understand the, the illustration here. But several years ago, uh, Avengers Endgame came out. It's the final movie of 22 movies worth of stories. And it was preceded by Avengers Infinity War. And the, the directors were two brothers of both of those movies. Two brothers directed both of them. And once the movie had come out and spoilers had come out, they began to, a lot of interviews going in, how did, how did you write this? You got picked to write the ending of a story that had 20 movies preceding it. How did you write it and, and, and do it? And what, what drove you to make the decisions? And it was very interesting, their answer. Because their answer was not, well, we looked at where the characters were last left off and we tried to. This was literally their answer. They said, when we started, we only knew two things. We knew the characters. We knew who they were. We knew their, literally the character of the characters. And we knew exactly how it was supposed to end. We knew the character. We knew the ending. We didn't know anything else. So we just started with the character and the ending, and then we worked. And every decision we made in writing those movies, every decision of what to put in, what not to put in, what line to write, what line not to write, was all determined by knowing the ending and the character. Well, church family, here's the reality. Whether or not you're a fan of the Marvel movies or not, it's irrelevant. What is relevant is you and I know the ending to this story. And if we know the ending of this story and the character of who this story is about, then it should impact and determine every small reality of our lives. So I invite you this morning to pick up your Bibles and join me in Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. This is absolutely relevant for the sermon, but back when I was a youth pastor, I was told that if you're ever at middle school camp and the boys won't go to sleep, just begin having a discussion about end times and Revelation and they'll be asleep in five minutes. That's not what we're going to do today, so if you fall asleep, though, I won't judge you publicly. <laughs> Kidding. All right, Revelation chapter 19, look at verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. 
And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Church family, here's, here's the setting. Here's the picture. When we get to verse 11, it says, I saw heaven open. Literally, I looked up and saw the sky opened. And we know from Matthew 24 that at this moment, it's, it's not just one person who sees this, but when this moment comes, the entire world will all of a sudden hear the trumpet of the archangel. They will look up. They will see the sky opened. This moment, Jesus comes descending, and, and with him the armies of heaven. And we see in Thessalonians at this moment, as, as this trumpet blares out, as Jesus begins descending, the dead in Christ are, ri are, are risen before, and those who are alive in Christ are caught up in this worldwide moment happens. I saw heaven open. That word open, by the way, is a perfect tense verb, which literally means, and I saw heaven opened, and it now stands open forevermore. The scene that is taking place here ushers in the end of this story, but the beginning of the rest of the story, and it's unchangeable. Amen. The heavens are opened, and, and, I, and I, I saw, there's no going back, I saw a white horse. A white horse. A horse is that animal of battle that a king would ride in to wage war. We see the one returning here not riding a donkey as before, but now he, he rides that animal worthy of a king riding into battle, that white horse, that white righteousness, purity, the one who comes, the warrior king to vindicate those who persevere faithfully. And he who sits on this white horse is called faithful and true. Faithful and true. Now, both terms are used of God, of Christ, all throughout Scripture. What we mean by faithfulness is, is that whatever, whoever God says he is and whatever God says he does, he actually is that and does that. He carries it out. He is faithful. He, is, he, he carries things through he is dependable. He is trustworthy. When it says that he is true, what we mean is, is not so much, this, though this is true, we, we don't mean so much that God tells the truth, although that is true. What we mean here by true is that God is who he actually presents himself to be. He's not the fake God. He's not a mirage. He's not someone who, 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 is, who is a trickster showing himself to be one way but actually being another. He is the true God. And while both terms are used of God all throughout Scripture, this is the only place in Scripture both terms are combined together to form what's almost a title and name for God, He who is faithful and true. In fact, the only reference we have to it is, is from apocrypha literature written in the time of the Old Testament. It's interesting what it refers to because when that combo comes together, it refers to God's faithfulness to defend His honor by righteously judging his people's persecutors. It speaks to the fact that God vindicates his people, that he is a faithful God. He, his character does not change. He is actual God. He is not fake. He will not allow one word of promise to fail, which is why he can say, my word goes out and does not return void. It accomplishes what I send it to do. And church families, we start a new year, understand this. 
There will never be a point in this year where who God says he is in his word will not be absolutely true. There will never be a point this year where what God says he will do in his word, he will not faithfully do. Which means that you and I can trust him with abandon even when the world mocks those who trust in Christ, even when those who claim Christ say, wow, isn't that a bit much to trust him that greatly and deeply? Why? There is a vindication for those who trust him because he is faithful and true. He is faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. By righteousness, we mean being in correct standing with God's holy moral order. Which means that any action that the one who is faithful and true takes in judging and waging war upon sin, any action that he takes is absolutely flawless in its perfection. In righteousness, in righteousness, in conformity with God's justice. And you don't understand what this means, church family. It means that as you and I live in a world of injustice, there is no injustice that escapes his notice because in righteousness he judges. It means that there is no aspect of sin, seen or unseen, that he does not take seriously because he judges and wages war on it. It also means this, that in God's judgment of sin and the punishment that he deems fitting for sin is absolutely correct. And it doesn't matter how much you or I like it or dislike it. It doesn't matter how much a world will come up with excuses to say that is harsh, that is not this, that is. Here is the reality. If he is righteous who judges and wages war, then you and I have absolutely no ground to say, God, you're wrong. What God judges and says is true because in righteousness... He judges and wages war. His eyes, a flame of fire. Now, this reference has already been there in the book of Revelation. Back in chapter 2, when Jesus first appears, we see his eyes are a flame of fire. It brings to mind passages like Hebrews chapter 4, where it says that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, able to pierce the division of soul and spirit, bone and marrow, before the eyes of whom we are laid bare Eyes of flaming fire speaks to eyes that see in holiness, eyes that, that see in refining, and eyes that see everything. The one whose eyes are of flaming fire is the one who sees all. And it brings this reality. There is no hiding from his gaze. There is no hiding anything seen or unseen. There is no hiding anything big or small. There is no pulling over, the, pulling the wool over God's eyes. There is no uh, being able to go around him. God sees all things. Christ sees all things. The one who sits, who's faithful and true, his eyes are a flame of fire. 
And church family, for those of us in Christ, if we understand this correctly, oh, the joy and the hope that this ought to bring. It means there is no detail, no detail, however small in our lives, no detail, however mundane, that he does not see with intimate and perfect clarity. It means there is no self-centeredness or sin in our lives that can be hidden from our gaze. And here's what's incredible, that if we are in Christ, there is no aspect, no filthiness in our lives that is hidden from his gaze, and yet we still have his holy, loving, gracious gaze. And absolutely, does his gaze, should it bring conviction in our lives when we realize that there is absolutely nothing we can hide from the Lord? Absolutely, it should bring conviction, not in the the terror-stricken version of God where he's the cosmic cop who's ready to thump you on the back of the head, but in the reality, as we've looked at in the book of Philippians, that he is holy, that he is beautiful, that he is glorious, that he is wondrous. And if he has truly saved us in his grace, then oh, the joy to know that even on my worst day where he sees every last drop of me at my worst, if I am really in Christ, his blood still covers me, and the joy of knowing his loving, holy, refining gaze is on my life and won't be removed. The flip side, for those outside of Christ, this should be absolutely terrifying. See, it's not terrifying for you and I in Christ because when those eyes of flaming fire come and and, and, and set their gaze on us as they scour the earth to and fro looking for those whose hearts are truly his, when when God looks at us, when Christ looks at us, what, what is seen? What's seen is Christ's righteousness. Not our sin, what's seen is Christ's righteousness, that we're able to stand and, and be able to be seated at the table of the Lord as sons and daughters. But if for those outside of Christ, there is no such hope. They stand before the eyes of flaming fire, completely and totally in their sin. This is the one who rides in, who sees every little true aspect. On his head are many diadems. I don't know the last time that you used that word in everyday vernacular. (laughs) Anybody get any diadems for Christmas? Here, honey, I got you this diadem for our anniversary. Diadems. What is a diadem? A diadem is a term for a crown of majesty. It's a kingly crown. Literally, it's an ornamental jeweled headdress. It's, it's this beautiful, ornate crown that, that signifies not only that one is king, but that that king is sovereign, that that king possesses control, that that king is the rightful ruler. And notice the one riding on the horse, Jesus, he is crowned with many diadems. That word many is actually what it means is he is crowned with an innumerable diadems. In contrast to the beast and the false prophet who wear ten diadems and seven diadems, a limited, finite, small number, Jesus is crowned with unlimited diadems, with many diadems. What does this mean? What is it saying? It's saying that he is the almighty sovereign king. 
He is the almighty sovereign king. It means he possesses all power. It means he's the one who actually stands behind the helm of the ship. He's the one who determines where it goes. It means though the nations rage, it means though to our eyes, even the beast and the false prophet seem to have some level of, of power and rule, all bow before the almighty sovereign rule of the one true king who is crowned with many diadems. This is what it means. It's his absolute sovereign rule. Understand, church family, as we walk through this year, whatever this year comes, and we've gotten pretty good at discovering the last couple years that years can bring all sorts of things we weren't expecting. Let understand, there is not a thing that will happen this year that catches God by surprise. And there's not a thing that will happen this year that will somehow cause any delay, any alteration, or will impact in any way God's almighty sovereign plan to return and set things right. There's no ruler who will pop up who will stop him. There's no elected official who will put a pause on it. Why? Because he is crowned with many diadems. And on him there's a name which no one knows except himself. And this is an interesting little statement. And if you really do digging, uh, you'll find a lot of different answers of, of what does this mean, that he has a name written that no one knows except himself. And, and you'll find some references that the name reference, uh, looks at the, the character of a person. So there's this name that represents his character. You'll find references that this name that is unknown is, is, is an illusion for the fact, or not an illusion, an illustration, a metaphor for the fact that while you and I can know Jesus truly in reality, in realness, because he is God and infinitely above us, we will spend all of eternity and still never know him fully. To have a name that only he knows references this. Some have also said back in, back in the first century, it was commonly believed that if you knew a person's, this idea of a true name, then you possessed power over them. Well, if there's a name written on him that no one knows but himself, you know what that means, church family? No one has power over Christ. We see that he is the name that no one knows. We see his clothes with the robe dipped in blood. Now, before you jump, and, and, and even when I first walked through this passage years ago, I, robe dipped in blood, all right. He's the one that's talking about the blood he shed for us. Actually, not. It actually references back to Isaiah chapter 63. And what it's a reference to, his robe dipped in blood, is his robe dipped in the blood of his enemies. Now, isn't this an interesting picture? The battle hadn't taken place yet. We're just seeing Jesus descend on the white horse, he who is faithful and true, he who in righteousness judges and wages war. Yet he's wearing a robe already dipped in blood of enemies. How is, what is, Jesus' victory is so certain that though you and I have not seen it play out in space-time, the enemies have already been defeated so that his robe is already stained in the blood of those who've been defeated. His victory is sure. He is the absolute victor. And we see this play out. We see this play out. Just look real quick. Drop down. Look at verse 20 when the battle happens, or verse 19. I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse, 
Verse 20, and the beast was seized, and with him the false prophets who performed signs. The rest were killed with the sword which came from his mouth. And if you look over at the last, last battle in chapter 20, all the forces of the enemy have surrounded Jerusalem. Verse 9, they came up on a broad plain of the earth. They surrounded the camp of the saints, the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Got news for you and I, church family. Jesus is the absolute victor, and his victory in the, in, in the final battles is so sure that it is the most unepic Hollywood ending you could ever dream up. There's going to be no tension. There's going to be no question who wins. There's going to be no Hail Mary, last second toss. There's going to be no drama to it. Because he is the absolute victor whose robe is stained in blood. And, and look who comes behind him. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Now again, some will say, who are these armies? I think it's obvious we could say that there's angelic armies following him down. But if you, if you go back, and we're not going to do so for time today, but if you go back and look in Revelation, there's fairly substantial evidence that not only are there angelic armies following him, but, but who are the ones who wear the white robes? It's the saints. It's you and I in Christ. It's you and I that as Jesus descends and the dead in Christ are raised first and those who are alive are caught in the air. Guess who gets to ride into battle with Christ? You and I. But notice, we don't do anything other than ride. Because we're not the ones who achieve victory. He is our victory. He is the one who brings the victory. We're just there to go along for the ride and the glorious victory of our King. Rides down. From his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations. He's the fin strike down the nations. He may rule them. With the word of God, the sword that comes from his mouth, it's not so much a literal sword as what we're saying is here comes the reality that these nations in Scripture who rage against the Lord the Lord puts them in their rightful place. Think about that practically, church family. When you think about the nations today that, that are the top nations that persecute believers, where it seems like there is no earthly hope for the end of that persecution, when you think about the North Koreas, when you see the, the re-increased persecution in Southern Asia and in, in areas like India and Eastern Asia and places like China, when you look in some of the African nations, the nations that rage against the king, in that moment, the sharp sword, the word of God, Jesus literally speaks a word and subdues them in complete and total defeat. Amen. It's a really cool verse in Second Thessalonians. speaks to this. It says, speaking about the Antichrist in chapter 2, verse 8, that literally the Lord defeats him with his breath. The most powerful being this world will ever see outside of Christ, the Antichrist, who will literally whip the world up and unite them in a frenzy against the one true God. He's defeated with a breath. That's what, we're that's what we're talking about. The sword, 
the sword that comes from his mouth that strikes down the nations. And, and we jumped over. It says his name is called the Word of God there in 13. And we don't want to miss that because his name meaning the Word of God means he is the finisher. The Word of God is the one in John 1 who was with God and who is God, who created all things, who took on flesh, who is the light of the world and the life for all who will believe who gave to you and I the right to become children of God if we would receive him. The word of God who is sharper than a two-edged sword, Hebrews 4, the word of God which goes out and does not return void, Isaiah 5. You see, here's the reality. Jesus is the finisher. He is called the word of God because he carries out every last purpose of God. And there is no opposing and stopping his will. From his mouth comes a sharp sword. He strikes down the nations. It says he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. Literally, he pours out the wrath of God. Now, let's be clear, church family. The wrath of God is not God in an irate fit of complete and total hostile anger, just zinging lightning bolts just beside himself. That is a caricature and a lie of the enemy. The wrath of God is God's settled and, yes, intense and passionate disposition against sin, but it is the rightful response of a righteous God towards that which is wrong, that which is in complete denial of his character, that which is responsible for every last drop of death. Jesus treads the winepress. He pours out the wrath of of God and church family understand this means that God really does take sin serious. For Jesus to still, you notice God, he makes all things. He sets Adam and Eve in the garden. He gives, he he walks with them in the garden daily. He, He gives them everything. He gives them one. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil lest you die. Obviously they give in. Sin enters the picture. Isn't it interesting that even once we get to the end, God hadn't somehow eased on sin being sin? That sin still deserves the fierce winepress of the wrath of God? God takes sin serious. You and I might look at some sins, and over time, as we get worn down from the world, we might go, well, maybe it's not as big of a deal. Maybe we, maybe we need to reinterpret that passage of Scripture. Maybe there's a way it can harmonize. That's not what God does. Still at the end, there he is. Wrath is the rightful response towards sin. But oh, what a glorious Savior that the one who will return riding that white horse, the one who treads the fierce winepress of the wrath of God, is also the one who was born to a virgin on a silent night away in a manger who on that cross drank every last drop of the fierce wrath of God so that any man or woman, boy or girl who would dare respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit say, Jesus, save me that we would be saved. The one who here, lest we get this picture, man, how, how harsh is that? Jesus is pouring out the wrath of God. Yeah, the one who first drank the wrath of God certainly has every right to tread the winepress of the wrath of God. 
Because though you and I sin is deserving of absolute and total wrath, we live in the age in between where the Lord has not returned, not because he is slow, but because he is steadfast, long-suffering, patient, wishing that none should have to taste that wrath, but that all might be saved. All won't be saved because not all men and women, boys and girls, will choose to believe. But, oh, God's heart longs, and there is a way that has been provided because the one who treads the fierce winepress of the wrath of God is the one who first drank the fierce wrath of God on you and I's behalf. And notice this, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Church family, this picture, this, this, this passage takes us to the very end. It takes us to the moment when the Lord returns. We can debate well, rapture, not rapture, pre-trib, post-trib, pre-wrath, post trip We can debate all those different things, but here's the reality. This moment, there comes a moment, a real moment, when the trump resounds, when the heavens open and there's no going back, and Jesus descends on the white horse. And the one who descends is faithful and true. He is exactly who he says he is. He does exactly what he said he's going to do. And when he comes down, holy and righteous, seeing all things, he comes down as the absolute sovereign ruler, king, victor. And no one can stop him. This is how this chapter of life on this earth ends. It ends not with a dramatic, climactic battle. It ends not with terror for those of us who belong to Christ. It ends with an overwhelming victory by the one who is faithful and true who is King of kings and Lord of lords. It ends with Jesus, the conquering warrior king, returning for his own. He obliterates those forces opposed to him. He raises his own. He transforms our bodies, and he ushers in a new and eternal perfect home. The end of this chapter of life for those of us in Christ is just the beginning of what we have been made for and are now destined for for all eternity. So here's my question, church family. You and I cannot claim ignorance. And if maybe you've never even known how a story ended, this is your first time you walked in, now you can no longer claim ignorance after this morning. We know how the story ends. The Word of God which does not return void, but accomplishes everything which God intends it. He who is in faithful and true, we know how the story ends. We know the character of the one who the story is about. So how does this truth impact every last drop of our lives as we live this year? How does this impact our pursuit and trust our pursuit of and trust in Christ. Understand, church family, our purpose 
is to know him. It's to love him. It's to be known by him and loved by him. Our purpose, church family, is not to find the perfect community. It's not to have the family of our dreams. It's not to gain worldly honors, whether that comes from work, school, academics. It's not about what vacations you or your family go on. It's not about what retirement you can afford one day. It's not about the accomplishments of our children. It's not even in my life about being a great minister with a great ministry. It is about Jesus Christ, period. Knowing him, loving him, following him. How does this impact? How does this impact? How does this call us to a renewed passion, a renewed, rea- a renewed reality to that? How does this, when we sing those songs of worship, is this the Jesus we see in our mind's eye? In those moments of deep despair and utter, dar- utter darkness, is this the Jesus we see in our mind's eye? In those moments of, of condemnation, is this the Jesus that we call truth to mind and we remember this is our King? I remember walking through this passage years ago in the college ministry at Central, and I had a student come up, and he came up to me several months later, and he and, and, and just said, ever since you walked through that passage, this passage, he said, every time I sing a worship song, I can't get this picture out of my mind. It ought to change how we worship, church family. Our worship songs shouldn't sound like funeral dirges. They should sound like songs of those who are confident in the victory of the king. And it shouldn't just be our worship songs. It should be every aspect of our life because worship is not just song and highs or lows. When injustice happens to you this year, when you're wrongfully passed over, when you're picked on in class, when you stand for truth and people come after you and you lose your spot, when pain and sorrow occur, or maybe when all your dreams come true, how does the truth of Revelation 19 of he who is faithful and true dictate how we respond in those moments? When 2022 turns out to be absolutely not the year we wanted, or when 2022 turns out to be better than we ever dreamed, how does this impact? See, church family, when we're faced with the best or faced with the worst, we can rest in him who loves us, him who endured the cross, him who did not spare his own son, he who is faithful and true. Because we know the end, we can have hope. And we can rejoice no matter the circumstances. We can even grieve when we need to grieve because we understand that the feet of the one whom we fall before weeping is he who is faithful and true, the absolute sovereign ruler of the universe, and he who is coming back. How does it impact our pursuit of and trust in Christ? How does this drive us to the word and in prayer? I won't even give you the stats, but the stats for those who claim to be believers in America are appalling in terms of how much time we actually give to being in the word of our God and spending time in prayer. How does this not just alter our pursuit of and trust in Christ? How does it alter what we value this year? I'm going to cast a wide net here, church family, because it's the beginning of the year. I don't know what if you're a resolutions person or not, I don't know what's on your docket. I don't know what you see through the year, but I want to ask, are the values you're valuing actively in your life right now, if we know this is how it ends, how do our present values line up? Let me just ask some questions of us. How does our attitude towards holiness and sin line up with a Jesus who in righteousness wages war against sin? See, church family, there is no place in our lives for a cavalier, disinterested attitude towards sin in our lives. 
Scripture says to flee sin. It says to repent when we stumble. It says to look to Christ. It says to rest in Him. It says to walk by the Spirit. It says that we are to work out our salvation in fear and trembling because He who is within us is at work. Yet Scripture says that as we get closer to the time of the end, the love of many will grow cold. Is there sin that shows where you and I are not taking Jesus seriously? Pride? There's places we speak falsehood instead of truth. Or let me just give you, I can't go through the whole list, but let me just give you a real simple one. It's pretty clear. Scripture says don't take the Lord's name in vain. I feel like that's pretty obvious. Like you don't have to do a whole lot of research into the Hebrew to figure out what does that mean. It means don't speak dishonorably about the Lord's name. Yet ever since I went off to college, I cannot tell you how many believers regularly will use the expression, oh my G-O-D. And then some of those same people will be teachers in my college ministry and will sit under my teaching using this example time and time again and we still don't change. Church family, how does our value, do we take sin seriously, not because we're trying to just get rid of all sin, but because we are captivated by this one who the heavens will open and he is faithful and true and we will see him for all eternity and we're driven by love for him. Oh, church family, that that would drive us, that a love for Christ would drive us to take seriously his heart towards sin and his victory over sin. How does it change our love for Christ's family? Jesus returns. He returns for his people. Hebrews chapter 10 says, do not neglect the gathering of ourselves. By the way, and I've said this before, not a suggestion, very much an imperative command. Yet the average church member today goes to church in Southern Baptist life less than two times a month. You would flunk out of college, but we say that's faithful to the body of Christ. And the reasons we don't come to church, we've got this camping trip, we've got this sports event, we've got this, well, we're just, listen, I'm not saying you can't ever not come to church. I don't have a little attendance chart in my mind and go, ooh, so-and-so's not here, there's pew seats empty. What I am just simply asking is, do we value the family of God like God values our being together? Do we take seriously in our small groups when we look around and we see, I wonder where that person's been. They hadn't been here in a month. Can I encourage you, if you notice someone's not here, pick up the phone and call or text. How seriously do we take being a church family in light of how things end. How seriously do we take that God's given you spiritual gifts, church family? He's given me spiritual gifts. He's given us spiritual gifts for the purpose of building each other up. Not so we feel great and good, but to build each other up. How, how in light of the fact that we know the ending, how does that change where you hear God calling you to serve today and to use those spiritual gifts? How does it impact the way we steward our finances? Giving is not optional in Scripture. There's the tithes, there's offerings, tithes being 10% of our first fruits given to the Lord. 
offerings over and above that. Yet in churches today, it's common that less than 20% of the church gives over 80% of the budget. Now, I'm not trying to stump like a televangelist for your money. I am just calling us to be faithful with the finances God's given us. God has called us to be generous givers. I remember being at a church on staff very early in my ministry, and we, we didn't see who gave what or anything like that, but we were, we were shown as we were working through some financial issues, we were shown basically what percentage of the church gives this percent of the money. And we discovered about 16% of the church gave about 84% of the offer of the, of the budget. And so I began to just kind of do the math. We had a four, bill, we had a $4 million budget, $4 billion. That'd be incredible if a church had a $4 billion budget. Wow, man. Uh, anyways, uh, we had a $4 million budget. And I started doing some math and crutching some numbers. And here's what I came out with, church family. If all of a sudden we got up to about 75 to 80% of the church faithfully tithing 10%, we would have had a $20 million budget plus. Now, you know what that means? Think about this. Church is trying to reach its local community. It notices there's, there's a neighborhood that's really tough times, families that for whatever reason can't, can't get, get out of a financial hardship, and a church with a $20 million budget could take 100 families, give them $100,000 a piece, could walk through them and train them in how to faithfully walk in finances. They could do all of this. I mean, you talk about crazy, and you know what? You'd still have $10 million left in your budget. How much more ministry has not been done through churches, either because of financial mismanagement on the leadership, that's valid, but also because we as a church body are content never to be faithful to give what the Lord calls us to give. How does the end change? How does the end in terms of reaching people? How does our relationship with the world change in light of the end? Think about Jesus' words to those that crucified him. What did he say to the Father? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It's interesting, as I went through my notes, this is a passage I've, walked, I've, I've preached several years ago, and God brought it back to walk through it, and I was going through it and refreshing it and applying it for us today. And it was funny, under, under this I had a note. Let me read you what the note says. In what is destined to be a turbulent election year, is my rant on Facebook done in light of Jesus we have just seen in this passage, or is it done in angry self-defense? Now here's what's funny. That was for 2020. And then I realized this is an election year. <laughs> Church family, we live in a world who is dead and bound in their trespasses and sins, that, that, that the same king who rides on the white horse, faithful and true, that when he came the first time, in the first advent, when he was on that cross, dying in our place wrongfully in terms of just standards, what was his response to those who put him there? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. It was to look past the screams of hate, past the screams of crucify. It was to see the core issue is these are people in bondage to sin, headed for death and destruction if something doesn't happen in their life. 
So church family, in light of how things end, when we post on Facebook this year, when we post on Twitter, when we have our conversations around the office cooler, will we as Christians look at the world with eyes that say, Father, forgive them, they do not know what they do, or will we look at the world with eyes of absolute condemnation saying, how stupid are you for doing that, you lost world? who are ironically acting the only way you can act. And interestingly enough, we are the only ones who have any message that could give them hope and see them brought to life. Amen. How does the end impact the way we relate to the world? How does the end impact, church family, our heart for the lost? It flows right out of that. There's almost 2.5 million people living in our greater Austin metro most of whom, the vast majority, at least 75%, don't know Christ. But let me just get more specific. Who's one person in your life, church family? Your neighbor, coworker, a classmate, a teammate that God has for you to engage, for you to take account of your time, for you to, in light of the end, reach out to. Same church I was at early in my ministry. It was after Bethany and I got married. Bethany was helping lead an uh, uh, exercise class for the community. It was held up at one of the church facilities, and this very faithful um, Romanian family, several ladies from this Romanian family would come. Don't know the Lord. They had lived in here in America for nine years at that point. They had never once stepped in the home of an American. Man, like, you talk about open doors a believer. Hey, family, please just come over to our house for dinner where there's scripture on the walls everywhere, and, and we could... Church family, there are open doors. There are people in front of us left and right that God has dropped in our laps. But are we so caught up, are our values so driven by the rat race of the world that we miss living in light of the end. Are we even praying for open doors, church family? Are we even praying for people to come to faith in Christ? And let me just add this as we come to the end. Today, if you are in this room and you do not have a personal relationship with the one who is faithful and true, Scripture is real clear about today. Today is the day of salvation. I don't seek to manipulate scare tactics. Here is the reality, though. If you are outside of Christ, there is coming a moment where you will stand before the one whose eyes are a flame of fire. You will stand before the one who in righteousness must dispense the correct and just punishment for your sin. He's also the one who's already taken every last drop of it on your behalf. And you can know him today. If you hear and you sense that you are outside of Christ, that there is a conviction in your heart that I stand before the Lord, not covered in the blood of Christ, but I stand before the Lord, covered in the shame and guilt of my sins, I stand there. There is a path to salvation for you and today in Jesus Christ. It's simply you responding to that conviction in repentance and faith, asking Christ to save you, understanding 
that you're not just asking to be forgiven of your sins, you're asking to be reconciled and restored to the one you were made for so that when the heavens open and the one descends on the white horse, your heart is not filled with dismay, but your heart is filled with a joy beyond anything this world could ever offer because there is your king, your Lord, your savior. Today is the day of salvation and in a moment there will be the opportunity to respond. Church family, it says in Thessalonians that Jesus' coming will be like a thief in the night. It doesn't literally mean he's going to come at night. What it does mean is that his coming is going to catch everyone off guard. So church family, we know how it ends, and we know the character of the one who's coming. May we not be caught off guard because we're too busy with our hands in the sandbox of the world rather than our eyes and our hearts driven by the end. Let's pray. Father, thank you that the ending is clear. It is assured. There is no question. You are returning, Jesus. You who are faithful and true. You are the actual God. You who are faithful to bring it about. You who are righteous in your judgments. You who will set all things right, who will deal with sin, who will put death in its right place. You who no one will stop. And Father, even as I just reflected on this passage this week, I just find too many ways, it's so easy moment by moment to put my eyes elsewhere, to lose sight of the end. And Father, my prayer for us as a church family is that we would learn how to live in the mundane, everyday reality of life. Because you've called us to that. But you would show us how to do it where we are driven and captivated and compelled by who you are and the fact that you're coming back. So Holy Spirit, as we need to respond today, find our hearts open and willing to respond. It's in your name we pray, Jesus.